is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where they teach you all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. The subject of FDR's relationship with Joseph Stalin is for many observers a puzzle. How could the leader of the free world in the face of American capitalism have had a working relationship, let alone something resembling a friendship, with a person who embodied the complete opposite? A brutal, ruthless, totalitarian dictator who perpetrated mass atrocities on a scale difficult to quantify. And this day in history, Joseph Stalin died in 1953. On March 12, 1938, Adolf Hitler's Nazi troops march into Austria and annex the German-speaking nation for the Third Reich. By March 1939, all of Czechoslovakia is occupied by the Nazis. Stalin, like the Nazis, is happy to put ideological differences aside. So, in August 1939, Hitler and Stalin sign a non-aggression pact, but they were allies in all but name. A difficult relationship considering these two socialist governments, Nazi fascism and Soviet communism, hate each other. Here's Georgi Dragunov, a member of Stalin's Third Assault Brigade. We were taught to think of the fascists as our enemy. So to change our personal opinion and understanding that with the signing of this pact they were now our friends, this, of course, was very difficult. Here's historian Robert Galately. Stalin was determined to give Hitler everything he needed. And thereby, Germany would have no reason ever to attack the Soviet Union. Adolf Hitler forms alliances with Italy, Japan, and now the Soviet Union to create the world's most terrifying superpower. Here's historian Sir Richard Evans. We'll bomb every city. We'll bomb every village, every farm, every town. Hitler came to believe that he was invincible. Every time his generals urged caution, he overruled them. He believed that everything could be done if your will power was strong enough. You will kill every single man. We will annihilate them. But less than a year after the non-aggression pact is signed, on June 25, 1940, Hitler's blitzkrieg with four million Nazi troops defeat France in a mere 46 days. After steamrolling through Europe, his empire now nearly encompasses all of it. Hitler sees the Soviets as subhuman, mud people. Despite the non-aggression pact, 
Hitler thinks the Soviet Union will fall just as easily as France. He feels now is the time to do it. In the early hours of Sunday, the 22nd of June, 1941, Hitler orders a surprise invasion into the Soviet Union with more than three million Nazi troops. Without warning, Hitler's forces invade the Soviet Union. It's the largest land invasion in history. In one incredible act of ego, Hitler turns his most powerful ally against him. The Soviet foreign minister, Vyacheslav Molotov, confirms the news to Stalin. Here's Stalin's personal interpreter, Valentin Berezhkov. And when Molotov came to Stalin's office and told it, and Stalin just lost his speech, he could not even speak. He just sat down and was silent for some time because here he understood how Hitler practically tricked him, how he uh, misjudged you know, Hitler. Stalin's misjudgment is monumental. In a month, German troops are 100 miles from Leningrad. Smolensk falls on July 16th and Kiev is overrun in September. At a meeting of the Politburo, Stalin moans, all that Lenin created, we have lost. In desperation and at his weakest, Stalin has to form a surprising new relationship with the Allies. Machine guns, 50 caliber, to defend our cities. As early as 1941, U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt begins helping Stalin by sending airplanes, tanks, and guns to the beleaguered Red Army. And we can fight for three or four years. If Hitler is going to be stopped, the war in the Soviet Union must be won. In October of 41, German newspapers announced to the world that the war is effectively won. The British aren't doing much to help the Soviets. Prime Minister Winston Churchill is of two minds. He despises communism, but he also values anyone who fights against the Nazis. Just before the Nazis attacked the Soviet Union, he says, if Hitler invaded hell, I would make at least a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. The British relationship with the devil is not very effective, but Stalin knows he needs all the allies he can get, and he is about to gain a much more powerful one. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. On December 7, 1941, for the first time in modern history, America is attacked by a foreign power when the Japanese bomb the United States fleet at Pearl Harbor. Over 2,400 Americans die, and nearly the entire U.S. naval fleet in the Pacific is destroyed. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story on this day in history. Joseph Stalin died in 1953.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the unlikely alliance between Joseph Stalin and his country, Russia, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and our country, America. And of course, on this day in history, Joseph Stalin died in 1953. Within 24 hours of the attack, Roosevelt signs a declaration of war against Japan. Four days later, as part of their pact with Japan, Adolf Hitler declares war on the United States. In Hitler's second book, written in 1928 but never published, he made it fairly clear that once he had conquered Europe, he would turn to America. For the Nazis, there's never any end to war because they believed that a race like the Germans could only be kept vigorous by continual war and continual conflict. Americans rally. Here's John McCain. I was a very young boy, I think six years old. A guy drove up and said to my father, Jack, he said, the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor. My father ran upstairs, put some things together, and then the next time I saw him was three years later. President Roosevelt is under enormous pressure. No American president has ever faced the challenge of fighting two wars at the same time. With the fate of the world hanging in the balance, Roosevelt and Churchill get to work. These two men are all that stand in the way of a world controlled by Adolf Hitler and the Axis powers. It is time to make a deal with an unlikely partner. They have come to the realization that the enemy of their enemy needs to be their friend. If the Allies are going to win this war, they need Stalin on their side. And as it turns out, Stalin needs them more. And Roosevelt is under no illusion as to the nature of the Soviet ruler. Here's Susan Butler, author of Roosevelt and Stalin, Portrait of a Partnership. He had no illusions about Stalin. He went in thinking that he was a tyrant and that he was a dictator, that he was as bad as any other dictator in the world, which is what he said. Culturally and politically, these two men are worlds apart. Roosevelt is brought up in luxury and educated at Harvard. Stalin, a cobbler's son, is beaten by his alcoholic father. He drops out of college to evangelize the cause of his religion, Marxism. He even masterminds a bank robbery in 1907 in order to fill the party coffers. Born Joseph Jugashvili, he is a man of action who sees himself as a fighter. In 1912, he changes his name to Stalin, which means Man of Steel. Despite these differences, Churchill and Roosevelt believe it is possible to persuade the man they sometimes refer to as Uncle Joe by using the carrot, not the stick. On December 15, 1941, Churchill sends Ambassador Anthony Eden to meet with Stalin at the Kremlin. It is Stalin who has an idea on how to best cement the friendship between the two countries. Eden is shocked that even with German troops surrounding the Soviet capital of Moscow, Stalin is thinking so far ahead to the post-war world. What about the attachment of the secret protocol? 
Stalin wants an agreement that he will be able to keep all the territory he snatched by acts of aggression and collusion with Hitler prior to 1941, including Eastern Poland. I cannot do this without consulting the Prime Minister. And I must also talk to the Americans. When he hears Stalin's proposals, Churchill rejects them outright. In August 1942, Hitler sends millions of Nazi troops to converge on an industrial city so important to Joseph Stalin, it bears his name, Stalingrad. Hitler believes if he can take Stalingrad, he will be one step closer to global domination. In desperation, Stalin turns to the United States for help. Vyacheslav Molotov, the Soviet Commissar of Foreign Affairs, the second most powerful man in the Soviet Union, is sent to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Roosevelt. Molotov, like most of Soviet leadership, is no ordinary politician, but a former revolutionary. Inside his suitcase, the White House valets find some sausages and then a pistol. Here are the words of Eleanor Roosevelt. The Secret Serviceman did not like visitors with pistols, but on this occasion nothing was said. Mr. Molotov evidently thought he might have to defend himself, and also he might be hungry. Molotov has made the journey to ask for an immediate invasion of France in order to take the pressure off the Red Army in the East. An operation Stalin calls the Second Front, but just two years later, will be launched as D-Day. Before his first meeting with President Roosevelt, Molotov has a surprise visitor late at night. Can I say a few words, Mr. Molotov, before the meeting tomorrow? It is 53-year-old Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's closest friend and chief advisor. He's considered Roosevelt's eyes, ears, and not surprisingly, feet as well. I can tell you that President Roosevelt is a very, very strong supporter of the Second Front in 1942. But the American generals don't see the real necessity of the Second Front. This use of Hopkins as intermediary was one of the classic tactics Roosevelt used to manipulate the Soviets, or as he called it, handle them. Here's George Elsie, the White House Naval Intelligence Commander and advisor to President Roosevelt. Thank you for your advice. That was a favorite word of Roosevelt's, I handle people, I can handle someone. That phrase stuck in my mind and I kept thinking of it as the war went on. Uh, Roosevelt was always thinking he could handle people, no matter who or what it was that he, he would pull through as the, as the top dog. Mr. Molotov has expressed this very clearly. The next morning, there Molotov met President Roosevelt. He is careful to take the you advice he received in secret to stress how badly the war is going, even suggesting how the Nazis might defeat the Soviet Union in 1942, which would reap dire consequences for both the United States and Britain. We want very much to open a second front. That is our hope, that is our desire. There remains the question, can it be done? Roosevelt wants Molotov to go home with good news for Stalin, which would then encourage the Soviets 
to keep fighting. But shortly after, Stalin receives further catastrophic news. Because of setbacks in Africa and elsewhere, Roosevelt, along with Churchill, tell him there can be no second front in 1942. Stalin is devastated. Back in America, Stalin is portrayed as a hero, crowning him as Man of the Year in 1942. Time magazine calls Stalin a pleasant host who worked at his desk 16 to 18 hours a day. Here again is George Elsie. Well, the American people, the public at large, were quite unaware of the Soviet purges and of the relocation of uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. It was necessary for the American leadership, the government, the president, to have a sense of realism about the Soviet Union. Uh, the public at large, it was not really essential for the public at large to know that. Why not? Uh, we've got to win the war. <laughs> That's what counted. And when we come back, more of the story of Joseph Stalin, who died on this day in history in 1953, and this unlikely alliance that more than likely saved the Western world. And by the way, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific and free online courses. There are much more than a dozen of them. Great place for you to gather with your family and learn things about your constitution, about American history. Heck, the C.S. Lewis course alone is worth a visit. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. When we come back, more on the life of Joseph Stalin, his alliance with the United States, during the war of the century, the war of the world. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Joseph Stalin and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and this unlikely alliance that saves the Western world. Let's continue where we left off. On the 19th of November, 1942, more than one million Red Army soldiers beat back the Nazis. Meanwhile, Roosevelt and Churchill open a kind of second front in North Africa against the Nazis. The Yanks are ready. The doughboys are spread out for miles behind every tree and shrub, ready to strike the enemy or repel infiltration. But the Western Allies face tougher opposition from the Nazis than expected. This puts into jeopardy any plans to invade France in 1943, the real second front Stalin so craved. Then, in late November 1943, 
One of the most important meetings of the 20th century takes place at the Soviet embassy in Tehran, the capital of Iran. Here, for the first time, the leaders of the alliance, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, the big three, will meet face to face for four days and for the first time, attempt to win the war and shape the future of the post-war world. Just prior to the Tehran conference, the fruits of Roosevelt's diplomacy with Stalin begin to appear throughout the Soviet Union. Here again is Susan Butler sharing with us what she considers one of the standout stories she encounters during her 15-year research. Moscow is about to fall to the Nazis. Stalin is at a low point, and Roosevelt sees an opportunity. Here's what Roosevelt asked for. FDR told Averill Harriman on his way to Moscow to meet Stalin to work out Russia's immediate armament needs to pressure Stalin to open the churches. Two years later, two months before Tehran, Stalin not only opened all the Russian Orthodox churches and seminaries throughout the Soviet Union, he freed the three Russian Orthodox patriarchs whom he had put in jail in 1925. The churches remained open throughout Stalin's life. Roosevelt's tactic is to find a common bond with the paranoid, suspicious Stalin. He does this by teasing his friend, Winston Churchill. His message to Stalin basically is, I'm on your side, I'm not going to double-cross you, trust me. On the third morning of the Tehran conference, he finally breaks through. I said, lifting my hand to cover a whisper, which of course had to be interpreted, Winston is cranky this morning. He got up on the wrong side of the bed. A vague smile passed over Stalin's eyes, and I decided I was on the right track. I began to tease Churchill about his Britishness, about John Bull, about his cigars, about his habits. Winston got red and scowled, and the more he did so, the more Stalin smiled. Finally, Stalin broke into a deep, hearty guffaw, and for the first time in three days, I saw the light. The ice was broken, and we talked like men and brothers. Stalin is always respectful towards Roosevelt, in stark contrast to the rudeness he sometimes displays towards Churchill. And more than respectful, here's Susan Butler telling us a story about one night at the Tehran conference where Roosevelt struggles to sleep and what Uncle Joe does to help him with his insomnia. Stalin had a, had a habit, actually, of sort of wandering down into Roosevelt's rooms. So uh, after Stalin asked whether the president had slept, Roosevelt said, yes, he'd slept very well, but he had trouble falling asleep. And, and so the question was, why? And, then, and, and Roosevelt's answer was that the, uh, the frogs kept, kept him awake. And so, of course, the next thing that happened was that all the frogs were killed. Stalin also seeks revenge against Hitler. Over dinner one night, he talks of how he wants to treat the Nazi leadership after the war. Here's what he says. At least 50,000 and perhaps 100,000 of the German commanding staff must be physically liquidated. Must be physically liquidated. They must be shot. Churchill protests. The British parliament and public 
We'll never tolerate mass executions. Stalin fires back. Perhaps Mr. Churchill has a secret liking for the Germans. Roosevelt seeks to defuse the atmosphere. I have a compromise to propose. I put the figure of Germans to be executed at 49,000. No more. <laughs> Everyone laughs, including Stalin. At dinner, Roosevelt seeks to build a relationship with Stalin. He's seeking a cooperation on a whole range of different issues, like gaining involvement from the Soviet Union against Japan. We need to ensure that Germany can't threaten Europe again. Then you need to help me. And you need to help me. Now let's talk about Japan. I will help you with Japan if you help me with Hitler. There is no invasion. Then I cannot help you with Japan. Roosevelt and Churchill are now committed to Stalin's request for a cross-channel attack. American soldiers soon flood into Britain in preparation for the largest amphibious invasion ever attempted. On June 6, 1944, 150,000 Allied troops pile into thousands of boats and cross the English Channel for Normandy, France. The operation that would become known as D-Day is launched. As the Nazis are attacked from the Russians in the east and the Americans and Brits in the west, Hitler's empire begins to fall apart. This is John McVeigh in Paris. Those bells you can hear are the bells of Notre Dame Cathedral, and they ring a chime of thanksgiving. In November 1944, Roosevelt is re-elected president for an unprecedented fourth term. But Roosevelt is keeping a secret. A year and a half earlier, he is diagnosed with hypertension in his heart. He knows he has not long to live. He is a man in a hurry. In February 1945, as prospects to end the war are in sight, Stalin, along with Churchill and Roosevelt, travel to Yalta on the Black Sea in the south of the Soviet Union to attend what would become their second and most famous meeting of the war. Their agenda? The future of the world. Upon arrival, it is plain to see that the pressures of war have clearly taken their toll on President Roosevelt. And when we come back, more on this remarkable story, this remarkable alliance, Roosevelt and Stalin. And we're covering this because on this day in history, in 1953, Joseph Stalin died. And by the way, it brings to mind what David McCullough once said on this show when telling a story about George Washington, and it was this. Nothing had to happen the way it happened. And these guys were walking through times where they didn't know it was actually going to happen. We know now, but they didn't know then. All of our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College who remind us of these truths and facts every day. Nothing had to happen the way it happened. We'll find out what else happened here on Our American Stories. The Alliance of FDR and Joseph Stalin.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Stalin and FDR, America and Russia. Here's Hugh Lungi, British delegate at the Yalta Conference. Churchill looked at Roosevelt um, sort of very solicitously. Churchill, I suppose, had no surprise, as I had and anyone else who'd seen uh, Roosevelt previously, to see this gaunt, very thin figure. His face was waxen to sort of yellow and waxen and very drawn, very thin. Uh, and a lot of the time he was sort of sitting sitting there with his mouth open, sort of staring ahead. Uh, so that was quite a shock to see him in that state. Stalin was full of beans. He was smiling, he was genial to everybody, and, and I mean really everybody, even to junior ranks like myself. The newsreel coverage is decidedly optimistic. This meeting crystallizes the Allied resolve that Germany shall be beaten unconditionally and that lasting peace shall prevail throughout the world. But Roosevelt's appearance is deceptive. He has two key objectives at Yalta. The first is to get Stalin to agree with a post-war United Nations organization. This will be the practical outcome of Roosevelt's vision of the great powers acting as the world's policemen. Stalin agrees. The second and most immediate is to secure Stalin's entry into the war with Japan after Germany's defeat. Americans make up the bulk of the Allied forces who are engaged in the Pacific in what is known as island hopping, the struggle to wrest each island from the Japanese. Just eight days after the Yalta Conference, the Americans have launched one of their fiercest assaults on the eight-mile-long island of Iwo Jima. The total American casualties in the 26-day battle, including the wounded, are over 25,000, more than the Allies suffer on D-Day. Here's U.S. Air Force bomber pilot Paul Montgomery. We were taxiing in to Iwo Jima, and the runways had just been built. I passed right by a graveyard. Indescribable number of crosses. I couldn't look any longer. Uh, somehow I became traumatized with the effect of what price had been paid for that island and the reason they took it was so I could have a runway. I, I couldn't describe to you I was uh, affected by that. And when I came to realize that they were just kids like myself that wouldn't, wouldn't be going home. Sorry. I, um, I just couldn't make it anymore. It, it just took something out of me that I didn't know was there. I thought I was pretty tough. I wasn't tough. What happens on Iwo Jima is a stark reminder of the determination of the Japanese to resist at all costs. Of the 21,000 Japanese defenders, 20,000 die in the struggle. 
So Roosevelt is intensely grateful when Stalin promises the Soviet Union will help America against the Japanese once Germany is defeated. Stalin's Red Army pushes through Germany into the center of Berlin and begins shelling Hitler's subterranean refuge, the Führer Bunker. Adolf Hitler's empire is reduced from 3 million square miles to 500 square feet. Right when the victory seems within reach, America's dealt a devastating blow. That spring, in 1945, President Roosevelt travels to his small home in Warm Springs, Georgia, his traditional health retreat. On the 12th of April, as he poses for a portrait in his living room, he suffers a stroke and dies. Stalin is devastated. I think Roosevelt was one of the few people in the world that, that, that he looked up to. I mean, I think he looked up to, to uh, Roosevelt as much as he did to Lenin. When Roosevelt died, Stalin put Moscow into mourning. He ordered all government buildings to fly flags with black uh, borders around them, and all of the newspapers announcing Roosevelt's death, the front pages were all bordered in black. I mean, the idea that the head of the communist world would do this for the head of the capitalist world is quite, quite amazing. Franklin Roosevelt, who has been the president of America for 12 years, does not live to see victory over the Nazis. Just over two weeks later, on the 30th of April, Adolf Hitler, who, after World War I, vowed never to see Germany surrender again, takes his own life. And shortly afterwards, Germany surrenders for the second time in the 20th century. For four years, the Red Army has bore the brunt of Nazi aggression. In helping to defeat the Germans, the Soviets liberate concentration camps like Auschwitz. The human cost for the Red Army in this war is immense. 27 million Soviets die. That's almost half the total deaths in all of World War II. 11 million are military. 16 million are Soviet citizens. American losses, 410,000. The Soviets kill 90%, a total of 4.7 million Nazi soldiers. American soldiers kill 10%, a half a million Nazis. The war in Europe comes to a close. Here's historian H.W. Brands. The war ends in Europe. And of course, for Europeans, that's the end of the war. For the United States, it's not. The United States still has another war to win. On July 1945, the victors gather just outside Berlin in Potsdam. The vice president for less than three months, Harry Truman, sits in Roosevelt's chair. Prime Minister Winston Churchill is about to unexpectedly be voted out of office. One man stands triumphant, Stalin, the new emperor of the Soviet Union and half of Europe. One month later, America and the Soviet Union sound the death knell 
of World War II over Japan. One million Russian troops invaded Manchuria, but that was the day that we dropped the second bomb on Nagasaki. And, um, and, and uh, the specter of the bombs, the second bomb, that was our second bomb, uh, totally mesmerized the American public. And, and we never realized that Russia had, had uh, invaded Manchuria. It was, it was the two bombs and the two front war, the, the, the million Soviet soldiers uh, that precipitated the surrender a few days later. Here's Colin Powell. It's easy to criticize Truman's decision to drop the bomb, but uh, tell that to the million mothers who might have lost their sons. War is no fun thing. It's a terrible thing. But the fact that those two bombs were dropped, I think, guaranteed that we'll never see an atomic bomb again dropped on anyone. It's existentially not possible. And I know, I I was in charge of 28,000 of them. The alliance against the Nazis in Japan brings an end to the bloodiest conflict in human history. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. In the coming months and years, Stalin's triumph will open the age of two ideologically opposed superpowers and a Cold War which will last nearly half a century. On Stalin's 70th birthday, In 1949, pictures of the great leader are projected into the sky over Moscow. His all-knowing, all-seeing eye is everywhere. But his omniscience can't keep time from catching up with him. After a long speech on February 28, 1953, Joseph Stalin has a paralyzing stroke. Over the next few days, he slowly suffocates to death. He dies on the morning of March 5th. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. And thanks to all the contributors. By the way, you can hear all of our This Day in Histories, which are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College at Our American Network. Sign up. Get all of our podcasts on a long drive. Just dump them in. The George Washington Hour, the Wright Brothers Hour, the Battle of Shiloh. Heck, Will Chamberlain scoring 100 points. All really good stories, all brought to us by our great sponsors at Hillsdale College. And let me tell you, this unlikely alliance was unstoppable in the end. And we couldn't have stopped the Nazis without Joseph Stalin and the Soviets. 27 million died. Half of all deaths in World War II by one country. And the Soviets killed 90% of the Nazis. The alliance between Stalin and Roosevelt, America and Russia are this day in history. Joseph Stalin died in 1953. This is Our American Stories, and every once in a while, 
Our producer, Jesse, takes us on various road trips around the country, stopping along the way for sights and sounds of everyday life in America. Well, this little experience that you're about to hear is different. Most of us have airplane horror stories, and you're about to hear one that might sound all too familiar if you've done any amount of flying recently. Here's Jesse. So we got to the Memphis airport about 6 in the morning for our flight to Phoenix, Arizona. My wife, two kids, and I are heading out west for vacation, and this was the beginning of what would become a very long day for all four of us. Things got off to a shaky start right off the bat as we handed our boarding passes to the first person you meet at the TSA checkpoint. With a quick check of our tickets, my wife and I were allowed to pass. Then the agent looked down at my shy six-year-old daughter and asked, What's your name? My girl was paralyzed in fear. We've never really talked to her about strangers because she generally won't talk to anyone she hasn't known for at least 24 hours. She gave the agent a dead stare. His attention was immediately turned to my 11-year-old son. Who is she to you? The agent asked my son while pointing at my daughter. That's my sister. And the agent had about five or six rapid-fire questions for my boy that he could only know if he was in fact her brother. How old is she? She's six years old. Who are these two? My parents. Where are you going today? Um, Oregon. The entire Inquisition was a bit unsettling, to say the least. I mean, how have we come to such a suspicious place in society that a mom, dad, and their two kids can't just take a domestic flight without being suspected of child trafficking? Now, I know the TSA is just doing their job. They're making sure the kids we're traveling with actually belong to us. If my little girl was stolen from me and some nosy TSA agent were to help keep her out of harm's way... You bet your ass I'd be grateful. I just resent being treated like a suspect everywhere I go in the name of safety. So we made it through the checkpoint and onto our gate where a young blonde girl was clutching the leash of a massive pit bull who was lunging and growling at everyone who walked by it. (laughs) Men, women, and children still half asleep at 6 in the morning walking around the Memphis airport where a giant angry pit bull was ready to break free from its weak owner's grasp and rip to shreds the first leg it can get between his vice grip jaws of thunder. (laughs) The woman weighed about half as much as the dog did. Every time he would lunge or snap at a child walking by, she would just smile and giggle, trying to keep her shoulder from popping out of its socket. She acted like she was holding back an excited golden retriever who wanted to lick the ice cream off a child's face. Only her dog is a pit bull who's more interested in eating someone's face. <laughs> Not that I have anything against pit bulls, or a pit bull in an airport for that matter. Ordinarily, the pit bull is a very affectionate and intelligent creature, but this was no ordinary pit bull. And did I mention it's wearing a red sash that says comfort animal on it? I'm not being comforted. Oh, yeah. I'm real comfortable with your pit bull that's lunging at my children. When it walked by my kids, it locked eyes with my daughter and started to walk towards us. Keep that dog away from my children. My wife hissed. Again, smirks from the dog's owner like it was no big deal that her meathead of a pit bull was trying to attack people in an airport on Saturday morning. But no big deal. Let it go. Let other people's stupidity roll away like the water off a duck's back. Breathe. As we entered the cabin of the airplane and made our way back to our seats, I saw them. One middle-aged mom on the aisle seat. Her ten-year-old son in the middle. 
find a four-year-old boy in the window seat directly behind me! Mom! 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 Mommy! No, Trevor. We don't kick the seat in front of us. Oh, God, I can't believe this is happening. All the seats on this plane, and I get the one directly in front of this little terrorist. I'm thirsty! Stop playing with the tray, Trevor. The person in front of you can feel that. Why do airplanes fly? Maybe I should ask for another seat. We're on the broken plane! Oh, God, I hope he shuts up. I gotta go to the bathroom. Just calm down. Mom, I have to go to the bathroom. Mom, I need to go poop! <sighs> if it was possible, I would open the emergency exit and throw you out. <laughs> Even if it caused the plane to crash. Just teach you a lesson. <laughs> Ooh, calm down. He's just a kid. Oh my god, what was that? Did that little b- just rip an old man fart? It was a nasty old man fart. And it smelled like chewing tobacco taste. I rubbed some hand sanitizer on my nose before I buried it into my shirt to avoid the stench. All while this kid continued to kick my seat and play with the tray table, scream at the top of his lungs, fight with his brother, and now ripping nasty grandpa farts. <laughs> now, Trevor, if you don't stop kicking the seat in front of you, I'm going to take away one dollar. Is that what you want, Trevor? Give it, give it back! So we were two hours into this madness with another hour to go before we hit Phoenix when my wife whipped around in her seat, looked directly at the mom behind her and said, Would you please get control of your child? It was quiet now in the cabin for the first time. Though the smell of this kid's flatulence hung in the air like mustard gas in a hot sauna, the storm had finally passed. This kid just saw and heard my wife dominate his mother in public and responded by being quiet and polite for possibly the first time in his life. I wondered if this kid had ever been told no or to be quiet by either of his parents. This entire time, the kid's father sat in the seat across the aisle, completely ignoring the family fart circus that was going on beside him. I mean, kids will be kids. They can be loud and obnoxious at times, just like the rest of us. But look at this kid now. His mother pleaded with him for two hours to be quiet and to stop kicking with no success. Within just a few stern words and some eye contact, my wife effectively put an end to the nonsense that was taking place. Sometimes all it takes to get a kid to behave is a little less than being patient. My kids are extremely well behaved compared to this Tasmanian devil sitting behind me in a cloud of his own carrot farts. Ask your kids to be quiet. If they don't comply, tell them to be quiet. You can't always be nice. It turns crazy kids into psychopathic adults just like me. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And Jesse, we're all nodding and laughing because we have all been there. (laughs) And hopefully that's not your kid. This is Lee Habib, Jesse's story, a good one here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. our American stories and that music cues us 
for one of our favorite regular features, and that's The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she writes that column weekly for the Wall Street Journal. And for all of you who think you're going to go to the journal and just get highfalutin finance, our favorite part of the journal is the personal journal. And one of our favorite people who writes regularly for the personal journal is Heidi Mitchell. And her latest question, how often should I replace my coffee mug in the office? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you know, I need Heidi, a cup of coffee right now. I, I need two, and I, I drink soda, so <laughs> I don't drink coffee. I get my caffeine from Coca-Cola, but you could say the same about my Coke mug. So we'll, we'll oh. have to, I know it's gross, but let's talk about how did, where, why this one, Heidi? Is there someone in your office who has what we call the really gross coffee mug? It's more that the, the devotion to the coffee mug that people who have worked in the same office at the journal or wherever for forever, they haven't never replaced them. So you'll go to the you know the kitchen and wash your mug out or whatever, make microwave your lunch, and in the cabinet are these sort of verboten mugs that have been there for fifteen, twenty years. <laughs> you're not allowed to use them. Yeah, you're so not the question to... was like, whose are these and why are they so attached to these and is it unsafe to have the same disgusting brown mug sitting in there for years. Yeah, and by the way, it's not only that you can't use them, some people won't even let you look at them or touch them. It's so personal. <laughs> no, don't look at my mug. Do not look at my mug. <laughs> I mean, you get attached to these things. They're hard to find the perfect mug. I, I, I understand that. So, so tell me this first, Heidi. Do you use the same coffee mug from your early writing days? I'm the worst because I, I get my coffee from the guy at the cart, and I don't spend more than a dollar on my coffee. I probably spend less than any average American on coffee, on any coffee-drinking American. Because I just get it from the cup, from the cup, from the guy in the street. I don't have a mug. Oh my goodness! I don't have a mug. Oh my goodness! Well, this this is, get a mug. this allows you to be dispassionate about this. And and <laughs> what's the worry here, Heidi? You, you you have a mug, or your mug's near one of these other mugs? Because that's what I always worry about. It's like too much contact to that that diseased or old mug. Do I have anything to worry about? Does anybody have anybody to worry? Anybody have anything to worry about, Heidi? You know, there are few um, germs that can last more than an hour on an inert object like a like a mug. So you really don't have anything to worry about. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like the germs are going to jump from one mug to the next. I guess that they're touching, maybe, but you need a critical mass to get you sick. So you really don't, there's never been a case as far as the NIH or or any major uh, institutions have known about that people were, there was a a mass breakout of infection due to coffee mugs. So your mug sitting next to another mug. It's cool. Your mug's fine. So so what about that, you know, we have a friend in the studio who, when we described the, uh, the office coffee mug, talked about his dad's and how his dad would just never, ever replace it. And, you know, it would start to get him nervous. Talk about that. Also, talk about Navy sailors who take really great pride in what I call or what you call seasoning the mug, seasoning the mug. I like that. I love this. Um, so so I was talking to, uh, you know, this Dr. Stark, who, um, you know, he was the director of infection control at a hospital in Texas for 22 years. And, and you're talking about, about Dr. Jeffrey Stark, a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And what I love here, Heidi, is that in the end, you always call some expert who has an expertise in almost everything in every walk of American life. I just love that yeah. part of your column. Who knew? 
Who knew? These people existed. Yep. Right. Well, he, he couldn't find any studies that were specifically on coffee mugs and germs that lurk inside of them. But he did have this great anecdote about um, how, like you said, that in the Navy, they take this great pride. There's a thing called, um, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, seasoning their mugs. So, um, so he said there, there was some... If you Google it, you can see on these like Navy blogs that um, the first thing your sergeant will tell you is don't wash your mug and that supposedly the Navy coffee is just toxic. And so the, the longer you let it, it your, your coffee mug turn brown over months and years, the better that your coffee will taste. There's not data to back this up, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. So seasoning your mug, letting it turn, you know how it turns brown on the inside yep. from the black coffee? So, uh, so yeah, so it, there's no data that says that this unwashed mug or this blackness that sits inside of the, of the mug, un, empty, unwashed mug, is bad for you. doesn't harbor germs, doesn't harbor infectious disease, hasn't resulted in any outbreaks. So, um, so you, you know, you don't really need to even wash out your mug. You can just rinse out your mug. Kind of gross. It is kind of like, gross. It is kind of, but here's where it gets grosser. Dr. Stark, this is, I'm going to quote from your article, Heidi, and I know writers generally don't like having their own work quoted back at them. But here's Dr. Stark's quote, which you include in the piece. Now, if you leave cream or sugar in your mug over the weekend, now that can certainly cause mold to grow. And if your mug had obvious signs of mold, you might not want to drink from it. Talk about that, Heidi. I think that's fairly obvious. But haven't you done that where you like... I mean, my dad's a big, oh, he does this all the time where he buys a coffee in the morning, then he leaves it in the car all day, and then the next morning he's like, meh, and I'll just drink his coffee from the car. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, you can see there's like kind of oil spills on top and all this stuff, the lint in the air that's fallen onto it. It's just disgusting. I don't know why. (laughs) I guess the first thing you do when you get to your office is just like pour out whatever's in there, rinse it out, and then you can start your Keurig or whatever they have at your office. Um, and fill your mug. But, um, you know, if it has obvious signs of like, you know, that, that it will cause almost like a crust of that white creamer is just the worst, but milk will curdle too. It's just gross. You can totally tell. Yeah. But, you know, if you rinse it out, it doesn't like the, the, I asked about the ceramic and the glaze and that stuff won't, it won't hold in that bacteria or viruses or anything like that. They, they can't live for more than like a year, so a, an hour. So like even overnight, if you had rinsed out your mug and left it sitting there and there's like little bits of coffee in there, it's not going to leave um, any like whatever legionnaires or whatever in there. Well, that's good to know, Heidi. By the way, I have a rule in my family, and that is that dad is not allowed to take takeout food ever again from anywhere because I will take it, stick it underneath the seat, and then I'll leave it <gasps> underneath the seat for anywhere from two days to two months until one day we all discover that dad's oh. done it again, and there's all kinds of things growing oh in the car. Gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. I do want to know that how long can food last? Because we have a debate in my house about leftovers. Nobody eats the leftovers. And then four days later, I'm like, I feel like it has to go in the garbage. My mother, I'm living with her in the summer, she's like, oh, no, it's good for a week. I really don't think cooked food <laughs> in the fridge it's good for me. No, I don't Coffee think so Coffee from either. yesterday is also not good. <laughs> no, it's not. So knowing all we know, uh, how should we wash our mugs? And how often should we wash them? Okay, so this is an interesting one. You should wash your mug with like a little dab of soap and some warm water. He says like, a lot of people said, well, there were some, a lot of things online, but you could take the super hot water that comes out of the spigot sometimes or on one of those, on like 
mulligan ones and um, polygon ones and, and fill your uh, mug with some hot water and then just swish it around and pour it out. But what you don't want to do is use the sponge because of all the nasty things in your office, besides, you know, that coworker that you don't like, that sponge is the grossest thing in the office. Um, it ha- has everyone's germs on it from all the food that they clean, that clean, the, you know, the place they clean the food off with and their dirty hands and whether or not they used the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and then pick up the sponge. And so the sponge is really disgusting. So don't use that on your, um, on your mug when you're cleaning it. But, you know, if you accidentally use that verboten mug that's sitting in the, in the cabinet and maybe that person's out sick and you've always wanted to try the I Love Mom mug that's sitting in there, um, what's great is that you don't have to worry about getting sick from it because, as Dr. Stark said, um, normal ger- people's normal germs really won't make you sick. He said if they did, then we would have to ban kissing. Oh, that's a that's a fair point, though. There are some people I don't know if I want to kiss them because their mouths are receptacles of diseases, too. That's true, too. Oh, well, Heidi, what are you doing? Anything special for your Christmas season? I'm going to my motherland, my homeland of New York City. Well, so good. I'll be there for a few weeks, a few days, just, you know, pretending like I still live there. Good for you. If you have a chance, <laughs> if you have a chance and you're in Brooklyn, ask a uh-huh. cab driver to take you to Spumoni Gardens. And if you haven't ever been there in your life, You'll thank me after you have their pizza. It's truly Spumoni the most... Spumoni Gardens. Spumoni Gardens. Pizza Dan- Brooklyn. I'm Googling it as you speak. Avenue U. It's a legend. It's been, on every, it's been featured on almost every cooking network, but my friends in Brooklyn don't know about it. Every time I go back to even Manhattan, I demand to go out to Spumoni Gardens. I'm promising you, you won't regret it. Heidi, as right. always, we love having you on. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the other side. Thank you. Take care. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she, of course, writes that for the personal journal, a part of the Wall Street Journal. Go to WSJ.com to get America's paper. It's simply the best paper in the world. And again, this is Our American Stories.
And that, of course, is our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. And by the way, we played the whole thing because you have to. And by the way, we knew you wouldn't turn it off. And we played that for you in its entirety because on this day in history, the Star Spangled Banner was adopted as the American national anthem in 1931. Throughout the 19th century, the Star Spangled Banner was regarded as the national anthem by most branches of the U.S. Armed Forces, but it was not until 1916 and the signing of an executive order by President Woodrow Wilson that it was formally designated as such. And then in March of 1931, Congress passed an act confirming Wilson's presidential order, and on this day in history in 1931, President Hoover signed it into law. There are a few other notes on this day in American history as it relates to music that cannot go without mention. Here's Jesse with the rundown. This day in music history, 1931, the first jazz single to sell a million copies was recorded. It was Minnie the Moocher by Cab Calloway. Most famous for its nonsensical ad-libbed scat that we've all heard before. Calloway would have the audience participate by repeating each scat phrase in a form of call and response. Eventually, Calloway's phrases would become so long and complex that the audience would laugh at their own failed attempts to repeat them. This day in music history, 1986, the Metallica album Master of Puppets was released. The third studio album by the heavy metal band peaked at number 29 on the Billboard 200 and became the first thrash metal album to be certified platinum. When Metallica played two shows in China in 2013, the Chinese government told them not to play the song, perhaps not wanting to harbor unrest with lyrics about being controlled by a greater entity. The band complied, although Kirk Hammett made sure to play the riff during their sets. This day in music history, 1998, Madonna's album Ray of Light was released in the U.S., a departure from her previous work. Ray of Light is an electronica dance and techno-pop album, which incorporates several genres, including ambient, trip-hop, and house music. Ray of Light has sold more than 16 million copies worldwide. The album actually gave Madonna her first musical Grammy of her career, as previously she had only won in the video category. This day in music history, this is Our American Stories. That was terrific, Jesse. We love them. Keep them coming. And I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm dancing right now. I can't help myself. <laughs> and now it's time for a little transition, and hopefully not too shocking, but we love talking about random acts of kindness here on Our American Stories. And today we bring you a random act of kindness story from the most unpleasant of circumstances, a story from Francine Christophe, a Holocaust survivor from France. During the war, well, she and her family were Jewish. They were put in Bergen-Belsen, a Nazi concentration camp, where overcrowding, lack of food, and poor sanitation killed more than 35,000 people in the first few months of 1945. But even in this dark place, kindness overrode self-preservation. Here's Faith translating Francine's story. Je m'appelle Francine... My name is Francine Christophe. I was born on August 18th, 1933. 1933 was the year Hitler took power. Look, this is my star. I had to wear it on my chest, of course, like all Jews. 
It's big, isn't it? Especially for a child. That was when I was only eight years old. Now, when I was at Bergen Belsen camp, an amazing thing happened. Let me remind you that as the child of prisoners of war, we were privileged. We were permitted to bring a little something from France. A little bag with two or three small items. One woman brought chocolate, another sugar, and a third a handful of rice. My mom had packed two little pieces of chocolate. She said to me, We'll keep this for a day when I see you've collapsed completely and really need help. I'll give this chocolate to you and you'll feel better. One of the women in prison with us was pregnant. You couldn't even tell. She was so skinny. But the day came and she went into labor. And then she went to the camp hospital with my mom and the barracks chief. But before they left, my mom said, Do you remember that chocolate that I was saving for you? Yes, mama. How do you feel? Fine, mama. I'll be okay. Well then, if it is all right with you, I'd like to bring your chocolate to this lady. Our friend Helene. Giving birth here will be hard and she may die. If I give her the chocolate, it may help her. Yes, Mama, go ahead. Helene gave birth to a baby, a tiny little feeble thing. She ate the chocolate and she didn't die. She then came back to the barracks and the baby never cried. She didn't even wail. Six months later, the camp was liberated. And when they unwrapped the baby's rags, the baby screamed. That was when she was born. We took her back to France, a puny little thing for six months. Then a few years ago, my daughter asked me, Mama, if you deportees had had psychologists or psychiatrists when you returned, maybe it would have been easier for you. I replied, undoubtedly, but we didn't have them. No one thought of mental illness. But you gave me a good idea. We'll have a lecture on the topic. So I organized the lecture on the theme, if the survivors of the concentration camps had had counseling in 1945, what would have happened? The lecture drew a crowd. Elderly survivors, historians, and many psychologists, psychiatrists, and psychotherapists. Many ideas emerged, and it was excellent. Then, a woman came to the podium and said, I live in Marseille, where I'm a psychiatrist. And before I deliver my talk, I have something for Francine Christophe. In other words, me. She then reached into her pocket and pulled out a piece of chocolate. She gave it to me and she said, I'm the baby. And that's a beautiful story, Faith, and that's what we do here in Our American Stories, and particularly when it comes to the Holocaust and the connection between America and Israel forged back then, before there was a state of Israel, the connection between America and the Jews. By the way, that particular camp was freed by British troops, by the way, in April 15, 1945. British soldiers found 60,000 starving, almost dead Jews, 13,000 dead bodies left unburied. And American GIs, as you remember from our hour with Dick Winters, liberated so many of the other camps. 
And again, that connection between America and the Jewish people forever forged in Europe in 1945 and during World War II. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Voices of Main Street segment brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's nothing like seeing a small business succeed. And when a small business can save a town, oh my goodness, that's even better. And today we're talking about a family business that did just that. It became an internet sensation, revived a dying hobby, and brought new life to the small town of Hamilton, Missouri. Quilting involves sewing large pieces of fabric together to make a thick, and Comfortable Blanket, a hobby that 21 million people nationwide enjoy. Missouri Star Quilt Company started off to stave off boredom and turned into a global quilting sensation. Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, has the details. While driving through the southeastern United States, you might happen upon Hamilton, Missouri, the birthplace of famed department store founder J.C. Penney. Ten years ago, Hamilton was a shrinking small town with little prospects and a crumbling infrastructure. That was until one woman changed everything. Hi, I'm Jenny from the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and I do online tutorials. There are over 300 of them. We are sitting here in our creative room. Uh, in our town here, we have 13 shops. They're all fabric specific. So when you go into a shop, it's gonna have solid fabric or floral fabric or Civil War fabric, and every shop is decorated around it. You can eat here, you can sleep here. It's just a great place to be. That was Jenny Doan, the face of the Missouri Star Quilt Company in Hamilton, Missouri. People describe Hamilton, Missouri as Disney World for quilters. And when you walk those streets, you can't help but believe them. Main Street is lined with cars, quilt shops, restaurants, and people from all over the world and all over the country hoping to meet their favorite YouTube celebrity. Mrs. Doan's online quilting tutorials have been viewed by millions of people all around the world. And every year, thousands of them make the trek to a small town in the middle of rural Missouri to meet her. But Mrs. Doan never set out to be famous. She didn't even start out as a professional quilter. I used to be a costumer. My background is in musical theater. Uh, when you make a costume, it doesn't matter how many months you spend gluing on sequins, it's got to look good from 20 feet out, hold together for two weeks, and somebody's going to use it one time, maybe two times. But when you make a quilt, it doesn't matter how beautiful or how old the fabric is or anything like that, but that quilt is going to be cherished for generations. There's longevity to it. The older our quilts are, the more we cherish them, worry about how we're going to take care of them, what are we going to do, how do we get that spot out, all those kinds of things. Even if I make a quilt for you, you don't like it and you give it to the goodwill, someone's going to go along and go, I can't believe I found this. But how did this all start? How did Mrs. Doan go from making costumes for musicals to the single most famous quilter alive? Turns out it was a family effort led by one of her sons, Alan. It was 2008, market crashed. My kids wanted to 
they got worried about what we were going to do because we lost our retirement in the crash. And so um, one day I went to pick up a quilt. Uh, well, Alan said to me, he, you know, he was asking, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to pick up a quilt. He said, what quilt is it? And I said, I don't know. It's been there like a year. And he's like, is that a thing? You know, is there, does it, are people really, are there just that few of them? And I said, no, they're just really backed up because there's a lot of quilters and people like to do it. He said, do you think you could do that? And I said, well, I could try, you know. And so they talked together. You know, long story short, they, they wanted to, uh, they decided to buy me a quilt machine and came to the house. It was too big for our house, so we had to buy a building. The building actually cost less than the machine did. So now we had this little business in this little shop over here, and I practiced on all my tops until I felt comfortable, and we started machine quilting for people. And Alan is a computer guy, so when he, he bought the machine, he started looking at what quilting was doing online, and it had not yet made the jump online, and he came and asked me one day if I wanted to do tutorials online, and I said, sure, what's a tutorial? And he said, well, I want you to teach people to quilt online. And, uh, and I said, how will people even find it? And he said, we're going to put it on YouTube. And I said, isn't that where those crazy teenagers put their videos? And he's like, yes, but it's going to be our center for learning. And I was like, uh, nobody's going to go look on the computer to learn how to do something. You know, I couldn't see it. He insisted it was true. And so we started doing videos online. People started watching. People that then called and said, hey, that fabric you used, you know, uh, I really want some of that. And I would say, well, it's mine. It's my fabric. You can't use it, have it, <laughs> you know. And they'd be like, well, I want some. And I said, the kids, maybe we should think about doing this. And we have over 300 tutorials now. And maybe, you know, I don't know how many over, but I know over. And a new one comes every Friday. Every single Friday, there's a new quilt, a new idea for them. And everything I do is quick and easy. Probably for most people, they're much more visual learners than they realize. And if they can see it, they can do it. So that's basically, in a nutshell, how that all began. Where Mrs. Doan is the face of Missouri Star, Alan is the brains. He helped make the Missouri Star dream a reality. And along the way, he learned the ups and downs of running a small business. When you start, you know, everybody's in the groove in the picture. It's like, we're doing it! We're doing it! It's going to be amazing. You know, it's the same as, like, you, you get married, and, like, your photos on your wedding day are like, this is the best! And then fast forward five years, and it's like, no, we're still really happy, but we know that this, you know, the, you know it doesn't come free. It takes some work. Or we're having a baby! Look, it's right there! And then three years in, you're like, no, we got a baby. And uh, I'm happy. I'm absolutely happy. But this baby, this baby takes some work. You know, the pictures of us in this warehouse five years later are like, you know, we are not the happy, gleeful, you know, 20-year-olds that we were when we started this thing. We are happy. We are happy, but, like, we know that it doesn't come free, right? We, we understand the cost. Through the efforts of Alan and Mrs. Doan, Missouri Star has grown beyond a family business. They employ over 400 people from the surrounding area, spending a large portion of their profits on improvements to local infrastructure. They've renovated buildings, opened three restaurants, painted murals, and built sidewalks all out of pocket. Missouri Star spends so much time renovating that they even have their own full-time five-man construction crew. When we were talking to him, Alan explained the joys of growing up alongside the community as their business grew, not just growing as a business. So a lot of the satisfaction I get is over these community members that I, I've known and loved forever and watching them you know, if they, if, if they leave here today, they go and they say, yeah, I helped this company grow from 50 to 400 employees. Here's what I did. Here's how I, yeah, I ran the warehouse. I know how to do that. So like hire me and I'll come and do it for you, right? Like they're, they're, they've developed a skill that's worth markedly more 
and what they could have come in with. So that's where a lot of my emotional connection to the to the local people has come. And the pride that I take in this town. I mean, I'm walking down the street with my wife last night. I'm just like, I love this place. Like, I love that, that there's great food to eat. I love that people come here and smile all day. And that, like, you know, we got these beautiful murals up and around. Like, this town is getting way, way better. As we spent the day in Hamilton, Alan's words began to make more and more sense. We walked through quilt store after quilt store, searched for cuts on their custom-made iPad kiosks, were greeted by several enthusiastic employees, and enjoyed burgers served on classy little slabs of wood. Everything seemed less rural Missouri and more big West Coast city. However, a trip to Hamilton cannot be complete without the most important part of the experience, the fans. When we met Mrs. Doan and tried to find a location to interview her, a second would not pass without somebody recognizing her and asking for a picture. It felt like traveling with a movie star, except that movie star was a quilt maker in rural Missouri. While we were waiting to interview Alan, we met a particularly passionate fan. The first thing we noticed was his hat, which was covered in Pokemon pins. My name is Manny Caldera, and I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I am a quilter. I'm an award-winning quilter, and I belong to the Wandering Foot Quilt Guild in Arcadia, California, and I'm the only male in the guild. And I'm third vice president in charge of fundraising and thinking outside the box. And actually, I'm, I'm on the hunt for Jenny. I want to actually meet her before I go back to L.A. Manny had traveled all the way from Los Angeles to meet his quilting hero. This man was so invested in Missouri Star and what the Doves were doing that he traveled nearly 2,000 miles to see it. We asked some employees how far people traveled to visit Hamilton, and the furthest they could remember was Australia. That's halfway across the world to visit the quilting capital of the United States. Mrs. Doan believed that all of this travel was far from a coincidence. So one of the, one of the fun things for me is that um, since we've kind of taken this on, there are a lot of communities that say, why don't you come to our community and do this? And I'm like, you can do this for your community. People our age, my age, um, we, are, we have more time and we drive to see things. My husband and I drove three hours to see the world's largest pecan. It was concrete, but it got us there. Now, um, people drive to see the world's largest ball of string. If everything, if when people got there, it, be, it was the center place for stringed cheese and stringed instruments and stringed art and everything macrame and everything embroidery and yarn was in that town and that town became the center for string, it would be huge. People would be coming from all over to go there. And I just kind of feel like uh, that's what we've done a little bit here. What people don't realize, there's, you know, there's always people who don't love change. But what they don't realize is there's always change. You're either growing or dying. This was not at all our plan to begin with. The plan was to keep mother and dad out of their basement. And now, many years and quilts later, Hamilton, Missouri has more quilt shops than any other town in the United States. What started as a hobby has redefined the quilting business and revitalized a small town. A far cry from trying to keep busy during the recession. And what a great story. Thanks for bringing that to us, Shadrach. And thanks to Hillsdale College for loaning their young, talented people to us for the summer. And what a story, folks. Jenny and her family, 400 employees, one small town changed forever. This is the power of small business to change lives. And, well, we love the folks at Job Creators Network 
who continually try and improve the lives of small business to fight back regulations and taxes so small business owners can grow their businesses and impact the lives around them. You can learn more about Job Creators Network at DefendMainStreet.com. The Missouri Star Quilt Company story here on Our American Stories.